Pan-African world and the hippest music mix in North America, tune in to Freedom Now, Saturdays at 11 a.m. Pacific. Don't let anybody make you think that God chose America as his divine messianic force to be a sort of policeman of the whole world. God has a way of standing before the nations with judgment, and it seems that I can hear God saying to America, you're too arrogant. If you don't change your ways, I will rise up and break the backbone of your power. Hotep, this is Femi, welcoming you to the liberated zone of freedom now. Watch out, a pan-Africanist internationalist world affairs program with a revolutionary spirited music mix freedom now stands in solidarity with all oppressed and indigenous peoples worldwide bringing you an anti-colonialist anti-imperialist anti-capitalist hour devoid of the eurocentrism nato and their all lies point of view regularly broadcasted in mainstream propaganda media. So we thank you, the listeners, in particular all who donated for our recent fund drive. To support listener-sponsored radio commercial-free, visit kpfk.org if you would like to donate and continue to support Freedom Now. Premiums are listed on the website. Stay tuned for our agenda here on Freedom Now. As always, we stand ready for revolution. Forward. You know they push us on drugs and on crime. This preconditions for us to do the time. There's a in the prison and the outside. More wars overseas, but right here you can't hide. Now wars, big business. This is no lie. Collateral damage when the innocent die. Victims multiply and the death toll rise. Our soldier on the mic, chant another war cry. More alive than what they show on television. Bullets fly by like missiles to seek and get them. Supposedly forbidden, written Christian commandment. That should not kill, but they willing you demand it. Every day, in every way. Why do we give kids fake guns to play? Keep them trained. Not a game, not just who you shoot. It's how you squeeze a name in this war. Going on. Around the globe, down the road, so you really don't know about the war going on. Get the bomb, see the guns, feel the bullets now, blood, there's a war going on. For the money, for the power, for the lust and greed in this war going on. Controlled by corruption, making people bleed in the war. Abari Ghani, this is Sister Thage with Freedom Now's Agenda for the week of December 26th as we wrap up the 2020 year. We commence with our ancestor, Didan Kamati, in the African Drumbeat Historical Calendar, followed by our weekly report with Skid Row community activist organizer, our brother General Jeff, reporting on what's happening in United Snakes' homeless capital right here in downtown Los Angeles, Skid Row. Then, our sister Frida Sidorov, 
director of the Garifuna International Indigenous Film Festival, joins us to discuss details about the ninth annual festival happening now through January 31st, 2020. Then, Freedom Now producer Sister Abibi interviews Dr. Stephen Jaisaw, who served as an advisory board member of African Studies at Loyola University International Studies here in Los Angeles regarding the recent December presidential elections in Ghana. Then, Freedom Now's co-producer, prolific author, radical historian, professor of African-American studies at the University of Houston, Dr. Gerald Horn, goes in as we wrap up 2020. You don't want to miss this in-depth analysis on what has happened this year historically, how we got here, and where we're headed into 2021 next week. Our music clip mix includes MLK, Zat Mama, Ross Ceylon, Kwamena Reales, Bato Drum Group, Houdini, Rest in power to their co-founder, John Ecstasy Fletcher, who made his transition this week at the young age of 56. And as Freedom Now continues to highlight Los Angeles jazz musicians, this week we honor our brother Kamasi Washington. So sit back, tell a friend, and as always, we stand ready for revolution. This is Abivi and you are listening to Freedom Now at KPFK 90.7 FM in occupied Mexico, including Los Angeles. We continue our program with Professor Stefan Giso, a school principal and a political analyst on the West African country of Ghana. He's going to give us his point of view and elaborate on the December 2020 presidential elections between Nana Akufuado from the center-right New Patriotic Party, NPP. He beats his opponent and predecessor, John Dramani Mahama, of the center-left National Democratic Congress, NDC. Welcome, Professor Giso. The mic is yours. Hello, good afternoon, Sister Abibi. Uh, and thank you so much for your interest in uh, Ghanaian uh, politics. Uh, thank you also, Freedom Now and uh, KPFK, uh, for allowing me to talk about Ghanaian socioeconomic and political landscape. Um, your first question was um, the uh, a brief background of Ghana political history. Uh, as you might have heard, Ghana obtained independence from Britain in 1957 and was widely celebrated in African diaspora. Um, the people of Ghana believed at that time that they would benefit from uh, the cocoa and the mining industry that the colonialists were um, accumulating for themselves. Uh, Nkrumah was popular at the beginning, but later on, uh, because of the ambitious project that he embarked on, uh, the country's uh, resources were depleted, and they ha he had to depend on the West. And that was the beginning of the problem. At some point, I think uh, Nkrumah was so much involved in international politics that uh, people uh, thought that he didn't have enough time to be able to take care of uh, Ghanaian issues. 
uh, as I've said, the economic situation got to a point where uh, he has to go uh, rely on the West to be able to finance uh, the ambitious project that he was pursuing. Uh, at that point, Ghana didn't have enough to be able to uh, finance the project that the Nkrumah government was embarking on. The people uh, become a little bit um, resistant to uh, Nkrumah's government. And I think 1964, uh, when he was faced with growing resentment and internal opposition, uh, he pushed for a constitutional amendment that made Ghana one-party state and made himself the life president. Now, as the opposition grew, uh, people also complained that Nkrumah was not uh, spending much uh, time in Ghana. On February 24, 1966, a group of army and police officers led a coup to overthrow him uh, while he was in China. Uh, fortunately for him, he found a refuge in Guinea, uh, where a fellow Pan-Africanist, Ahmed Sekotoro, made him um, an honorary co-president. Uh, so I think the Ghana political history from there, uh, after that, there was just a brief period, but these um, army officers uh, handed over the uh, government to uh, the, the National uh, Liberation Council, handed over the affairs of the nation to Dr. K. Buzia uh, in 1969. But unfortunately, uh, Buzia government was also overthrew uh, the uh, Buzia government in January 13, 1972. By the Chambo government, and uh, since that, that time, I think the government, ha the country, has not been uh, stable in terms of having a civil, a long uh, period of civilian rule. Uh, <clears throat> there was um, a period of um, a government uh, by the another uh, military government, which was overthrown by the uh, Rawlings regime, and uh, Rawlings uh, in 1992 decided to. Uh, move on to another republic. So the fourth republic came into place and uh, Rawlings uh, ruled the country for about eight years, uh, which was two terms of um, of his government. And then uh, then came the next election, the following election, which was won by the NPP government. Later, after eight years, uh, there was another election um, after the two terms, and the NDC government uh, party also took over. Let's fast forward then to I... Nana uh, Akufuado's election in 2020. Domestically, what is the base of his support in terms of class and ethnicity? NDP has its base in the mostly in the south, uh, specifically in the Ashanti region. Um, when you go to the Brav region, it's a little bit competitive. Uh, any one of them can win uh, there. At this time, I think the NPP won. Um, then if you go to uh, places like uh, Western region, that is also competitive. The Central region is also competitive. There are two regions that seem to be vote, that seem to vote M block in the sense that they vote massively for one party as against another party. Uh, the Ashanti region, uh, which carried probably the highest um, uh, population in, in, in Ghana, uh, massively, uh, they vote massively for 
the MPP as well. I think they garnered about one point um, uh, was it one point seven or something a million uh, vote from there. Uh, so that was uh, that was a, a huge number. But then the voter region normally uh, vote for the NDC. More of that, the NDC obtained more than probably eighty percent of the votes from the uh, uh, voter region this time. Both of them have um, they they have uh, different ideologies, but their practice is not um, their practices are not uh, exemplified or do not show what kind of uh, uh, ideology they have because they all pursue the same policies. Tell us about the victory of the incumbent Akufuado. Uh, the Akufuado government, I think, uh, uh, won was declared a winner uh, with a vote of about, I think, uh, 51, uh, 50 point, no, it's 51.3% as against 47.36% uh, by the NDC presidential candidate. <clears throat> and that was just a difference of about 3.94% uh, compared to 2016 when the difference between the uh, Akufuado uh, uh, vote was about 9.26% at that time. And so it looks like uh, the election this time was very, very, very close, surprisingly. So what was the posture of the ECOWAS neighbors toward him and his party? And then this time is a little bit tricky for any ECOWAS uh, government or any ECOWAS member to issue any statement because officially speaking, uh, the NPP uh, uh, candidate has been declared the, the winner of the uh, of the election. So uh, there are internal skirmishes in the sense of um, the opposing party not uh, conceding uh, defeat. But officially, um, internationally, it's recognized that the Akufuado uh, won the won the election. So. Um, there hasn't been any official uh, declaration or any pronouncement by the ECOWAS uh, uh, members. I see. That was my next question. So uh, regarding the European Union, what did they say about that? And uh, the U.S., what are their position about it? There has not been any clear uh, position opposing uh, the results. Uh, they have, there have been some statements made that uh, the... Um, the, election, the opposition party have not conceded and there have been uh, some kind of disagreement. But uh, I don't think there is any country or any um, economic community that have come out to say that uh, the, the election was fraud or something like that. I see. So on the digress on, on the nature and the level of their investment in Ghana, especially in terms of offshore and oil fields and cocoa, what are their position? What do they say about that? They have um, a plan to put some of the oil revenue into uh, some priority areas like education and uh, um, maybe hospitals, uh, health and stuff like that. Uh, but the money they're getting from it depends on uh, how the price of these uh, commodities in the international uh, market. Uh, when the price go up, they, they get a lot. If uh, the price go down, I think the revenue also go down. 
um, it has not been sustained in the sense of uh, the revenue has fluctuated depends on uh, how much uh, they're getting for these uh, products. I, I don't have the numbers right now here. Um, regarding the level and nature of Chinese presence in Ghana, are there a lot of them in Ghana? Do you have uh, uh, numbers for us? I don't have the numbers for how many Chinese are in Ghana, but um, I think there are a lot of uh, Chinese in Ghana in, um, compared to some years uh, before. And uh, many of them are in uh, areas like uh, mining, not in the big um, scale mining, but doing some sort of what the Ghanaians term the Galamse, uh, where they go to local areas and um, acquire lands and try to mine um, gold and other minerals, uh, sometimes uh, polluting the water and the environment, uh, which is very, very uh, um, environmentally hazardous for the people. So what does the government say or do about it? Current uh, government was, uh, he issued, um, they came out to say that they were against the Galamsee and um, they tried to see some of the machines that they were using to uh, do their uh, Galamsee. But um, I think as time goes on, uh, there was were a complaint that some of the uh, party members were also involved in it. So in as much as they understand that it is not good for the country in the long term, I think the uh, party politicking, politicking and um, um, local uh, conditions uh, make it difficult for the, anyone to stop it. Um, many times, I think these uh, Chinese, uh, they buy the land from the local uh, or the traditional uh, rulers and then uh, go ahead and do some of these uh, activities without even approval from the government. So it becoming, and then also the, some of the local people feel that it is a source of uh, a job opportunities for them. And so they also uh, resist um, uh, government intervention sometimes. So it's, it's a very uh, dicey economic situation, economic and political situation there. They are there to mine the minerals. So once they get a permission, uh, sometimes they probably will not go through the, the bureaucratic process to uh, get um, uh, a legal document before they start to even mining them. Were there a lot of deaths on the election day? And if so, do you have numbers? How many and why? I heard there were about five people who died, but uh, some of them, I believe they were killed because of uh, misunderstanding and also um, a confrontation with the, uh, the, the peace officers sometimes. Were they young? Uh, yeah, most often uh, people who are involved in these things are young people. Male, female? I'm not sure how many of them were female and how many of them were male, but often um, such confrontations uh, involve uh, males rather than uh, females. I understand. Everybody is talking about the COVID. Uh, the COVID, I don't think in Ghana right now, I think the numbers are not that as serious as we have here. In some places, they, 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 it's not something that they take into consideration when they're going to vote. So it did not prevent people from voting. Um, some of them wear the masks, uh, not all of them do. But I mean, they all went and vote. 
Yeah, the number of COVID cases in Ghana, I think it's about, the last time I looked at it, it was about 53,000 or something. Uh, U.S. alone, just one day, it was about 200,000 uh, mm -hmm. incidents. Is there anything else you would like to add regarding Ghana elections? Well, I think the election, the way it has been going, is that if you look at the, there's a, some kind of a discernible pattern going on, uh, since the fourth um, republic that every party is given eight years to uh rule and then uh, then after the eight years it's shift to an uh an opposing uh, party and my theory is that i think the the parties uh, they take power and then uh, when the people see a lot of corruption and um their uh, promises not fulfilled after giving them four years then they wait for another four years and if they don't see any changes they feel that they have to um, maybe move to the other party to see if they can see changes but always it seems their, their hopes are dashed uh, because none of them uh, fulfill the promises uh, corruption still continues irrespective of which party is in power. And so I think, but the issue is in their second term, they tend to do worse than their first term because either they believe that uh, they might not be able to get the third term. And so they have to get, everybody has to get whatever they can get in the second term. And I was expecting that this, uh, the MPP, would win the uh, second term and um, in 2024 it's going to be difficult for them I mean they can win but um, they have to do things differently before they can uh, win because every eight years they change right now there, there's a lot of uh, mistrust and distrust among Ghanaians a lot of money outside the country that can be used to develop the country but those outside don't trust those who are there to take good care of their resources if they were to invest them in Ghana. And so I think as Christian, if we can understand what uh, we are to, the way we are supposed to influence the, the community and um, our um, space in this um, uh, world, I think it will go a long way to uh, help um, improve the conditions in our countries. That's the end of our segment. Thank you, Professor Giso, for talking to us about the 2020 presidential election in Ghana. The sitting president, Nana Akufuadu from the NPP, beats his opponent, John Dramani Mahama, from NDC, with 51.59% of the vote, writes DutchWell.com. It shall be his final term, according to the Constitution of Ghana. Thank you for listening. I'm Abibi. See you next time on Freedom Now. It's that time of the Freedom Now Hour with our co-producer, prolific author, radical historian, professor of African-American studies at the University of Houston, Dr. Gerald Horn. And so where do we even begin our wrap-up of 2020, Professor Horn? As I speak in late December 2020, 
evictions are skyrocketing. Long lines for food banks are proliferating, while massive unemployment continues. Meanwhile, Congress debated for months before coming to an agreement on a stimulus package involving a compromise that was slated to send $600 to hard-hit workers. The team of U.S. President Donald J. Trump was involved from the beginning, yet after this compromise was reached, he denounced it as, quote, disgraceful, unquote, and said he wanted $2,000 to be sent to hard-hit workers. Then he flounced off to his palatial Florida estate to engage in endless rounds of golf. Then his party refused to follow his lead and rejected the $2,000 figure. Donald J. Trump, in many ways, reminds me of a predecessor, President Clinton. Recall that it was some years ago during his administration when the Chinese-American scientist Wen-Ho Li was charged falsely with espionage on behalf of the Beijing government that Mr. Clinton said in a rather ridiculous manner, it's terrible what the U.S. government did to this poor man. It's almost as if Mr. Clinton viewed himself as a bystander, not the head of the government that was persecuting Wen-Ho Li, and once again, we have Mr. Trump portraying himself as a kind of innocent bystander, not the head of the government that he's denouncing. This is occurring as the government also is headed for a shutdown. More on that in a second. At the same time, Mr. Trump ignores that the stimulus package that was negotiated was part of a larger scheme to fund the U.S. government and in his remarks denouncing the compromise by Congress, he singled out foreign aid spending for particular ridicule, except, of course, foreign aid spending to Israel. And then he tried to suggest, as a result, that Congress is more concerned with foreigners than U.S. citizens, therefore helping to whip up national chauvinism, which is his specialty. However, I'm afraid to say his biggest trick may occur within days, on January 6, 2021, when Congress, presided over by Vice President Michael Pence, is slated to engage in a pro forma exercise of accepting the vote tally from the Electoral College that was rendered on December 14th, but we all know that Mr. Trump has been having long meetings at the White House with various advisors who have been counseling him to invoke the Insurrection Act, declare martial law, tie up the Electoral College tally, and somehow continue in office for another four years. Now, I know that that sounds unlikely, but I should also say that many of our analysts haven't factored in what will be the impact of a government shutdown which could occur within days on this alleged pro forma exercise of January 6, 2021. Now, I agree, once again, that the prospect of Mr. Trump thwarting the will of the voters, as expressed on November 3rd, is highly unlikely, but we should also recognize that the base 
is demanding that he stay in office. Speaking of those 74 million creeps and miscreants who voted for Mr. Trump. Recall that when Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell accepted the December 14th Electoral College tally, he was not only denounced by Mr. Trump, he was denounced by the base, he was denounced by talk radio. This leads me to the point that many of our friends on the left have this narrative that the base is misled by the leaders when actually the opposite oftentimes is the case. And it starts, as we should know, in 1776, when then leaders in London told the colonies that they were reluctant to further wage war against Native Americans expending blood and treasure in order to turn the land over to real estate speculators and slaveholders like George Washington. As a result, we all know what happened is that the leaders from London were ousted and George Washington and his comrades were basically put into office. Thus, we should recognize that Donald J. Trump is no aberration. Non-elite European Americans historically have united with elites for their mutual benefit, starting with seizure of Native American land and enslaving more Africans. Now, black people historically have been able to foil their demonic, diabolical schemes by lengthening the battlefield and engaging in global solidarity. If I have a wish for 2021 is that this tradition be revived and resumed, this time to foil a demagogue who is hastening evictions increasing hunger, and leading to an escalation of joblessness, Donald J. Trump, in short and in sum, is no aberration. He's no anomaly. He's a logical outcome of the history of the United States of America. And thus, we should avoid the rise of Trump 2.0 by tightening our bonds with the African Union, CARICOM, Socialist Cuba, and radical forces worldwide. And so as we continue, what are some of the big stories of 2020? There are two big stories of 2020. One is the pandemic, and two are the protests following the lynching on camera of George Floyd. The pandemic has been hastening trends already in motion. The figure I'd like to cite is that the Bronx, New York, has suffered 4,000 deaths in 2020 as a result of the pandemic, which is the same total as the 1.4 billion strong People's Republic of China. As a partial result, China's growth rate for 2021 is slated to be a whopping 9%, which will accelerate the process that is ongoing of China in the passing lane and ultimately surpassing the United States of America, which may be the most momentous global change on this planet since the 1500s, when England began to surpass Ottoman Turkey, then Spain, and by the 19th century, surpassed China for global leadership. But the rise of China is not only the sole impact of this pandemic, 
A disproportionate amount of black wealth in the United States is concentrated in entertainment and in sports. Think of Oprah Winfrey and Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan and Jay-Z and Beyonce. However, the revenue streams of live sports, music concerts, movie theaters have been decimated by the pandemic. Likewise, tourism has been hit hard by the pandemic, along with ancillary industries like hotels and car rentals and restaurants and commercial real estate. Commercial real estate, of course, implicates construction workers, which in turn means fewer employment opportunities for carpenters, electricians, hot carriers, etc. The question for 2021 is, will the United States avoid a 1930-style Great Depression? To gain historical perspective, one of the books I've read lately is by the historian Frank Snowden, Jr., entitled Epidemics and Society. Some listeners may recall his father, Frank Snowden of Howard University, now no longer in the land of the living, whose book Before Color Prejudice, The Ancient View of Blacks, is still worth reading. The younger Frank Snowden, in his book on epidemics and society, starts with the plague of the 14th century and how it kick-started trends that culminated in European expansion and colonialism, which deposited many of our ancestors ultimately in North America. The question for today is, will the pandemic lead to a Great Depression along the lines of the 1930s, or will it heighten tension between the United States and China, which could culminate in a military conflict? Certainly, reading Frank Snowden's book on epidemics and society will provide some insight as to how one should answer that question. And of course, we have to discuss the crucial turning events of 2020. Now, with regard to the second big issue of 2020, speaking of the lynching of George Floyd on May 25th, 2020, it's a pivotal event that has had many spinoffs, including the removal of statues honoring the unlamented Confederate States of America, which tried to overthrow the government in 1861 in order to perpetuate enslavement of Africans forevermore. It led most recently to Major League Baseball deciding that the statistics made by players in the Negro Baseball League should be counted and has led to a like demand that Major League Baseball, a multi-billion dollar enterprise, should be made to pay reparations to the families of those baseball stars in the Negro League, speaking of Oscar Charleston and Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson, who were deprived of making a living because of the rancid racism of the MLB of that era. We also saw the fortunate retirement, not a moment too soon, of Uncle Ben, who used to appear on rice boxes, and Aunt Jemima, who used to appear on pancake mix boxes, boxes. 
We saw an acceleration of the demand to defund the police with the Black Lives Matter movement gaining traction, uh, which will save lives. Most portentously, we saw in June 2020 a strike by West Coast Longshore from Seattle to San Diego in solidarity with Juneteenth and in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement, a heroic and legendary and trailblazing action by organized labor. At the same time, we have seen that the Human Rights Council of the United Nations has been investigating the United States for its massive and pervasive human rights violations against black people along the lines of what Paul Robeson suggested about 70 years ago in his We Charge Genocide petition filed with that very same United Nations. Let me mention a personal point. Because the archives have been locked down as a result of the pandemic, I've been spending a lot of time reading doctoral dissertations and master's theses for a new project dealing with Egypt and Ethiopia in the context of the United States of America's discourse from the 19th century up until about the 1950s when Addis Ababa's Imperial Majesty Haile Selassie I was celebrated in Washington and the Egypt of Gamal Abdel Nasser was attacked by a piratical force led by Israel, Britain, and France. Now, of course, Egyptology was a primary preoccupation not only of early black leaders of the 19th century, but believe it or not, of a certain sector of the U.S. ruling elite. And some listeners might recall that Edward Blyton, a true Pan-African hero, was one of the numerous blacks who decided to become Muslims because of the fascination with Egypt, which of course is a predominantly Islamic country. But in light of this conflict that's now unfolding between Egypt and Ethiopia today over Ethiopia seeking to build a dam at the source of the Nile River, which Egypt considers to be a threat to its lifeblood, speaking of that very same dam, it brought me to 1875 when an Egyptian military force, which was led by former leaders of the slave-owning Confederate States of America, yes, an Egyptian military force in 1875, led by former leaders of the Confederate States of America, invaded Ethiopia, yet were defeated. And then that was followed in the 1890s when Ethiopia was invaded again, this time by Italy, and in a turning point in world history, they were defeated as well, although it's oftentimes forgotten that one of the reasons why the Italians were defeated is that Italy had to face an Ethiopian military that was armed to the teeth by Russia. This reminded me of Toussaint Louverture and the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, which raises the question of how did this small Caribbean nation defeat the major powers, speaking of Britain, France, and Spain, and it did so in part by playing off one major power against another. In other words, 
a lesson oftentimes forgotten today by our community of black people in North America is that we have oftentimes had to rely upon global solidarity and global forces to defeat our foes, which brings me back again to a salute to the Black Lives Matter movement and the black attorneys that are assisting them with regard to the motion they filed at the Human Rights Council of the United Nations in Geneva, which in a best case scenario could lead to sanctions against the United States of America, forcing it to change its policy with regard to police terror against our community, just like the United States seeks to sanction countries like Cuba, Venezuela, and Iran to alter their policy. Certainly, if this motion in the Human Rights Council in Geneva succeeds, that'll be the most fitting memorial for the late George Floyd. It will be a memorial that honors his memory and make the events of 2020 in which he was tragically involved somehow in a sense, in a limited sense, worth the price. Thank you, Professor Horn. And also, what about elections this 2020? In terms of a kind of Pan-African roundup, uh, one of the most important developments that took place were, were, these, were these elections that took place, for example, in Guinea-Conakry, a country that was once ruled by the late, great uh, Seiko Toure, and has now faced the re-election of the longtime, long-term leader, Alpha Conde, in the face of violence in the streets inflicted upon his political opponents. Uh, something similar happened in neighboring Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, where the incumbent Alassane Ouattara, who you may recall was put into office a few years ago at the behest of France, which sent paratroopers into Abidjan in order to arrest and detain his major opponent, Laurent Gbagbo, and bundle him up and send him off along with his spouse to stand trial at the International Criminal Court in The Hague, from which he was just released. Needless to say, Mr. Wutarab was declared the winner of an election just a few weeks ago in which his major opponents chose to boycott. And of course, we have the elections in Tanzania, where John Magliafuli, the incumbent, was able to prevail somehow. We saw the coup in Mali, which as you know, was an outgrowth of the improper, illegal overthrow of Colonel Gaddafi in Libya in 2011, leading to an outflow of weapons to Mali which helped to destabilize that country since the weapons fell into the hands of religious zealots who had been running amok, not only in Mali, but through a good deal of West Africa, including Burkina Faso, including northern Nigeria. And in fact, this may prove to be one of the major stories of 2021, how these religious zealots are on the march oftentimes funded, I'm afraid to say, by affluent Gulf Arab states and or individuals, which gives them the wherewithal to buy weapons 
by which they can torture, maim, and plunder. On the positive side, 2021 should see the launching of the African Continental Free Trade Association, which is an attempt to bind together the four dozen plus African nations into one continent-wide economy, certainly it should be a boost in the first instance for the giants of the continent, speaking of South Africa and speaking of Nigeria, and Nigeria will need that boost not only because of the rise of religious zealotry in the north of that country already alluded to, but also because of the fact that the pandemic has had a devastating impact on oil prices because less planes are flying, less cars are traveling on highways, and that means less revenue to Nigeria, but also less revenue to other oil-producing states like Angola and would-be oil-producing states like Ghana and Guyana, the English-speaking country on the northern coast of South America. In any case, we all look forward to 2021 with eager anticipation, and basically we hope and we are assured that 2021 will be made, will be a year bringing major victories uh, for Pan-Africanism. This has been Gerald Horn for Freedom Now on KPFK. And in closing, we'd like to thank our guest, Sister Frida, Dr. Stephen Jaisaw, Thank you, Brother General Jeff, Sister Abibi, Sister Femi, Brother Brandon, Dr. Gerald Horn, our board op Ricky, and all those who made today's program possible. This has been Sister Thage with Freedom Now. Please stay tuned for our Sister Assumpta coming up next with Spotlight Africa addressing issues facing Mother Africa. This program can be reheard for the next 60 days. Go to kpfk.org, audio archive, scroll to Freedom Now. And until next year, as always, we stand ready for revolution.